0: Turn your Bibles tonight to uh, Hebrews chapter five. We've been going through the uh, the book of Hebrews, verse by verse, for the last uh, well, I don't know how long, several weeks. And uh, Hebrews chapter five, uh, actually, Hebrews chapter five begins in verse fourteen of uh, chapter four. But um, uh, Paul begins. Uh, we believe Paul is the writer of the book of Hebrews, and there are some things that uh, that are going to come out in the next chapter or so, chapter chapter and a half, really, that. Um, that gives us some uh, uh some good evidence as to Paul being the author there are some things that he's going to talk about and and the way that he talks about some things that that pieces together with some of the other letters that he wrote particularly the letter that he wrote to the Galatians that um that we'll show you as we get to it but uh, chapter 5 really begins the uh, the biggest section of the the book of Hebrews um Chapters 5, really through um, a good part of, if not all of chapter 10, deals with Jesus in his high priestly ministry and Jesus as our high priest. Now, remember, he's writing to the Jews. This uh, letter, uh, in all probability, was attached to The letter that he wrote to the Galatians, you remember in Galatians chapter 6, he said, you see what a large or long letter I wrote to you with my own hand. Well, there had to be something else to the book of Galatians or the letter to the Galatians because it's just six short chapters. The book of Romans is bigger than the book of Galatians. The book of uh, both of the letters he wrote to the Corinthians that we have record of. He wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We have two of them. Uh, both of those that we have uh, in our Bibles is uh, is larger or longer than uh, the book of Galatians. So there must have been something else to it for him to uh, to specify that it was a long letter and that he wrote it with his own hand. And um, consequently, when he writes to the uh, the Jews, he he makes a separate letter that he knows is going to get back to the church at Jerusalem because all the problems that are taking place not only in the church at Galatia it's highlighted more in the church uh, in the letter that he wrote to the Galatians but all the other churches are being um, bothered by the Jews And these Jews are religious Jews that are coming from Jerusalem and stirring up trouble. You remember we looked in, uh, when we were studying the book of Galatians, we looked at what uh, the book of Acts tells us about how Peter came from Jerusalem to, to the church in Antioch and he found that the church at Antioch, you had Jews and Gentiles mixing together. Nobody was worried about what was eat, you know, who was eating the right thing or who was eating the wrong thing. Men and women are congregating together. I mean, it was like, like a real spirit-filled church. And Peter got so excited about it, he enjoyed it so much, that he didn't, didn't check back in with Jerusalem, and they sent people after it. So uh, uh, so everything that the church of Jerusalem started off with, with the power of God, then it began to spread to some of the other churches. Well, the church of Jerusalem didn't like that at all. They're trying to regain control. And some of the people that are involved are, are members of the priesthood. We don't know if it was a high priest or not, but we know that there were members of the priesthood that believed in Jesus and therefore became part of the church of Jerusalem. book of Acts tells us that. And uh, and there were others that probably just used the church as a networking site, and they weren't really saved, but they intermingled with them as well. So when Paul starts talking about the the high priestly ministry of Jesus, he knows exactly who he's talking to. He's talking to people that he's going to be explaining why they don't need a job anymore. Because if there are priests that are going to be going to have access to this letter, and this letter is going to be circulated throughout the church of Jerusalem, he's basically going to tell them, you used to have a place, but you don't anymore. And so he says some things really pointedly, and uh, as you could well understand, but then again at the, uh, at the same time, he explains it with, uh, with tenderness where he can. So let's start in chapter 4 and verse 14. We'll uh, uh, start, and actually I think what I want to do, I, I'm planning to get down through chapter 5 verse 10. Uh, things kind of change at, uh, at verse 11. We'll, we may talk about that a little bit. But let's start with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and then we'll go right on into chapter 5. He says, "...Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now he's going to shift in chapter 5, and that's why we have the chapter break, because he's going to talk about a high priest in uh, the office of the high priest, not Jesus yet. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained of men, or for men, in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed about with infirmity? And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man takes this honor upon himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by, uh, King James says by is the Greek word through, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered, and being made perfect he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God and a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, um, let's see, how do I want to start this? We, um, we read this from a Western mentality, and so, so we don't approach this from the same perspective to the people as the people that he's writing to. Like I said, there's a lot of the high priests and, and even the, the Jews at Jerusalem that are not part of the priesthood, they know how the high priestly ministry works. Now, if if we just went around the room and said, okay, everybody tell me what you know about the high priest in the Old Testament. You could probably tell me what he wore. You could probably tell me certain things that he did, like on the Day of Atonement, special times and special uh, actions and events and and things like that. But what else do we really know about the high priest? I mean, not much because we're not Jews. We didn't grow up with the law of Moses, right? Everybody understand where I'm coming from on that? So in order for us to understand the things that they normally would understand because it's what they've lived... I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and give us a little bit of, uh, of, uh, we're going to do a little bit of backtracking. In other words, we're going to go to the end and look back to, to see what they already know. Turn with me to chapter seven. Paul is going to make his case and we'll go back and look at the case that he makes. But notice in verse 11, Hebrews chapter seven, verse 11, Paul has taken everything from chapter five up until Hebrews seven, verse 11 to make a point, and now he's going to summarize the point that he's made. And so, verse 11, if we understand what he's getting to, then we can understand better, I think, what he's the point that he's making as he makes it. So he says in verse 11, he says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Now, I'm going to have to get let me get a little technical with you for just a minute. The Greek language has four conditions for the word if. We just think the word if means if. But in the Greek language there are four different conditions where the word if can be used. The first condition is when you're saying something knowing what the result is. Like uh, like Paul is asking a question that he already knows the answer to. That's what this one is. Another example would be, um, uh, you remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil after the after he fasted for 40 days, he's tempted of the devil. The first thing the devil said is, if you're the son of God, uh, command these stones to be turned into bread. Well, the, the devil knew that he was the son of God. He's not really saying, okay, prove it to me. He's saying, if you are, and I know you are, go ahead and turn those stones into bread. The second condition for when the word if is used is when you know the answer, but the answer is a negative. Like, for example, in um, uh, the second temptation, where the devil said to Jesus, he said, uh, if you will worship me, but I know you won't, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's the condition of the word if there. If you will do something, but I know it's not going to happen. The third condition, the first condition is one that we might say is better uh, rendered sense. For example, if God before us, who can be against us? Well, God is for us. He's saying, since God is for us, who can be against it? The second one, like I said, is when you know the answer is not going to be, the, the conditions are not going to be met. The third one is when you don't know if it will or not. A good example of that would be First um, uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is using the Greek language to say, I don't know if you're going to confess your sins or not, but if you do, here's the result. So the first one is when you know the answer. The second one, you know they won't. The third is you don't know one way or the other. And the fourth one is the most extreme, and it's almost a wish list. Um, it's, it's if you will do this, but I know there's not any possibility of that taking place. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. One of the most uh, interesting ones to me is Peter uses it. And Peter says, if you will suffer for righteousness, but I know there's no chance for that, then God will exalt you. And it's real interesting that he would use that because he doesn't throw it out there as if you might decide to or you might decide not to. He throws it out there as, as kind of an insult. There's not a chance that you're going to do this, and I already know. But it's way out there on the edge. This one is the first condition. He's saying since, or what we would understand as since the perfection, were, if therefore or since therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise? I'm sorry, I've misstated this. This is the second condition. He's saying something that he knows is not, uh, is not accurate. He's saying, if, and I know it's not, if perfection was attainable by the law, and I know that it's not, and you know that it's not, then why would there be a need for another priesthood? He's telling them very simply that God demanded perfection. Now, what does that mean to us? That means a couple of things. It means, first of all, if God can uh, demanded perfection, and we know that he does. He, He did all throughout the Old Testament. If he demanded perfection, then he has to make a way for that perfection to be attained. So how is it going to come? We know that it can't be attained through the law. We know that it can't be attained through the high priest administering gifts and sacrifices to God on our behalf. So then how is it going to come? There has to be some other way. And that's the point that he's making. Now notice he mentions both Melchizedek and Aaron. He's going to use his point, making his point about Jesus being our high priest, both Melchizedek and Aaron. The Jews know nothing about Melchizedek. It's one of the great mysteries of Judaism. You get any Jewish rabbi, you want to turn him upside down, ask him, tell me about Melchizedek, because they don't know. But they know that he's somebody important because he's right there in the Torah. But they don't know anything about him. They don't know why he's there. The Bible doesn't give us enough information, or at least didn't give them enough information, without knowing the revelation of Jesus, you don't have enough information about Melchizedek to know even why he showed up. Where did he come from? Why did he show up? And where did he go? They don't know. And that's one of the first things that Paul deals with. He deals with what they don't know. He's got the high priest's attention, or the priesthood, those people that are in the priesthood. He's got their attention right away, because he knows they don't have a clue. Okay, let's go back to chapter 5. This is the point that Paul is going to be making about Jesus being our high priest. He's going to point out, here's the reason why we needed one. Now, most Christians, I would assume, have the same general idea as the people I've had contact with, and that is, well, okay, Jesus is a high priest, but we really don't need a high priest because Jesus went to the cross and joined us to the Father. Nothing could be further from the truth. We definitely need a high priest. God doesn't change. The Old Testament revealed things or pointed to things that the New Testament reveals to us. But God hasn't changed. If there was a high priest that was needed under the old covenant, there's a high priest that's needed under the new covenant. And unfortunately, too few of us know anything about the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And so we don't take advantage of it. But Paul's going to talk about what's what's the importance. So what does he do first and foremost? First four chapter, or First four verses, he talks about the high priest's office. He's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about any man that stood in the high priest's office. Verse 1, for every high priest, he's talking about a man, taken from among men, first qualification to be a high priest is you got to be human. Every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Two things a high priest did, offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of mankind to God. Now, the gifts had to do with tithes, had to do with the meal offerings and uh, and the different ritual offerings and things like that. The sacrifices had to do with the animal sacrifice. Now, one of the big differences in Jesus and then the earthly high priest, the high priest of the Old Testament, is the earthly high priest, the Levites, couldn't administer anything to man from God. But he was only the go-between between man and God. But there was nothing coming back the other direction through the high priest. So his office was a one-way street, if you understand what I mean by that. Verse two, still talking about the high priest who, earthly high priest, who can have compassion on the ignorant on them that are out of the way, for he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Now infirmity just means weakness. It means that the, it means he's got the same flesh as everybody else has. And notice what it says. It says that the earthly high priest, because he is human, has an opportunity or the ability to have compassion on people that miss it, people that he's administering things for to God because he has the same flesh as they do. Now notice he mentions two different people that he administers things on on their behalf, the ignorant and those that are out of the way. So Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost, that the high priest's office deals with two categories of sins, things that you don't know and things that you do know and you did anyway. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. What is the the cure, the fix for things, uh, sins that you committed in ignorance? Knowledge. That's why the Bible says, that's why the Holy Ghost tells the Christian that the number one thing to do is renew your mind so you can present your body a living sacrifice. There are things that we do that we don't know. And as soon as we find out what the word says, we say, oh, wow, now I see what I'm doing. And then we fix that. At least we're supposed to. That will move us out of the category from ignorance into the out of the way if we continue in the wrongdoing. do You see the point he's making? That's going to be important because this same uh, explanation, this same description of the high priest's office still fits today. Verse 3, and by reason hereof, in other words, because he is flesh... Talking about the earthly high priest. And because the earthly high priest is flesh, by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so for himself to offer for sins. In other words, he's saying the earthly high priest. Now, here's where things get different with Jesus. The earthly high priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he messed up, either out of ignorance or he got out of the way. Now, we just read in chapter 4, verse uh, 15, Jesus was tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. So you can see right away what's going to be the difference between your, our high priest and their high priest, their meaning the Jews' high priest. Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Now this is a reference back to Numbers chapter 17. Any of you remember how God picked Aaron to be the high priest? God picked Aaron to be Moses' spokesman when Moses was arguing with God in the burning bush. You Remember? His last excuse is, I can't talk. I'm I'm not able to speak. Religion tells us that Moses was a stutterer. We don't have any evidence of that in Scripture whatsoever. We don't see any time where the Bible says that Moses could barely get out the words that God gave him to say. No evidence of that in any way whatsoever. Moses just simply said, I'm not good at talking. He wound up being a whole lot better at talking than Aaron was. But God said, okay, I'll give you your brother. Now, Aaron was not a strong guy. You remember when Moses went up into Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, the people saw the thunders and lightnings and the clouds and, and all the stuff, the earthquakes and all the stuff that was going on on top of the mountain. And they came to Aaron and they said, nobody can do that. We're going to have to make us an idol. Which, of course, is the fix when the prophet goes up into the mountain and, and thunders and lightnings and everything takes place. Certainly. I mean, that's what you do. You build a golden calf. The point is, Aaron says, yeah, well, okay, I agree. I don't, I don't think he can make it either. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Later on in Moses' ministry, when Miriam stands up against him and says, you're not doing things right, Aaron falls in line with her. Aaron doesn't seem to have a backbone of his own. So he wouldn't be, he, uh, well, here's the good news. God doesn't require great character to use you. It would seem that God would pick the best and the brightest. And, of course, looking at me, I'm sure you would assume that. But <laughs> nevertheless, it, it, you know, that's not always the way it works with God. It's not the way it worked with Aaron. But there came a point in time where Moses, in Numbers chapter 17, where Moses is challenged by the people. And they said, well, we don't like Aaron being the spokesman. Now, they wanted Moses to be the spokesman. They said, you're our leader. We want to hear directly from you. And so, and Moses basically told him, this is my paraphrase, but Moses basically told him, I'm not the one that picks that. God's the one that picks who he uses. And so they said, well, well, how do we know that Aaron's the best choice? He says, all right, he gets a direction from God and he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Let every tribe pick one, one person to, to, to stand as a, a prospective priest. And each of these people take a rod. Now, a rod was a short stick. That they would use, that shepherds would use for defensive purposes, and and uh, and so forth. David talks a lot about it. Uh, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me and and stuff. The rod is what David used to to beat off the the uh, uh, the lion and the bear and and things like that. So anyway, each of the twelve tribes is going to be represented by one stick. Now, uh, Aaron had a rod as well as the other uh, tribes that are um, represented. And then Moses was directed by God to take those 12 rods and lay them in the, in, before the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place of the, of the tabernacle. Now, can you imagine why that would be? Anybody got any ideas on why they would put them there? Cause nobody can go in there. You go in before the Ark of the Covenant, you die. We know that from the Indiana Jones movies. So you couldn't get in there. You couldn't get into where the presence of God was. And so there was no opportunity for somebody to go in and rearrange things and pull a fast one in some way and say, okay, mine is the one that's going to work. Now, here's what Moses told the people. He says, all right. He said, everybody, each of the 12 tribes, take one of these rods. We're going to put them in the before the Ark of the Covenant, meaning in the holy place of the temple. We're going to put them before the Ark of the Covenant. And and he said, in the next day, the one that God chooses will be evident. Well, the next day, Aaron's rod has grown buds. It's flowering. Now, it's a stick. It's not a limb. It's a stick. And it's flowering. Now... God did it that way, apparently, so that nobody could say, well, Moses, you just picked your brothers because you wanted him to be the one. Well, Moses, what's Moses doing? He in there with a glue gun at night sticking, sticking stuff on there? I mean, that wouldn't make sense. And so everybody could see, okay, God picked Aaron. The purpose for the story is that nobody had any opportunity to doubt whether or not Aaron was God's choice. And that's the point that Paul makes here. He says, no man calls himself to be a high priest. God's the one that does it. Now, keep that in mind for a minute. Think about all the things that we know where the high priest messed up in the history of Israel. I mean, some of the prophets just were death on these high priests. Because they would would get in, and, and apparently a high priest was a real stressful job. Because at least one day a year, you had to go into the presence of God, and man, if everything wasn't just right, you could fall dead in there. I joke about this, but it, I really mean it. Who wants to be the number two guy if the first one falls out? They used to tie ropes around the legs of the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he'd go into the holy place. Because if they heard him hit the ground, they'd drag him out by his foot. I mean, who's going to go get him? And so uh, in, in in that respect, you can imagine it would be a real stressful job, especially if you're not living right. And a lot of the priests weren't. You remember many of the stories, I'm sure, in the Old Testament where some of the priests were just, uh, they were just doing really bad stuff. It talks about some of the priests that would make the women have sex with them in order to accept their sacrifices to offer it to God. That's not in the law of Moses anywhere. I mean, that's not the instructions. You understand? There were places in the book of Malachi, for example, where Malachi the prophet talks about how that the high priests have dung on their, on their, their, their robes and, and everything that's supposed to be kept just right and so forth. It's a reference to being outside the camp because that's the only way that anybody anybody could could be soiled in their clothes because that's the only place that it was. And so there were a lot of times and a lot of situations throughout the history of Israel, they know this, Paul knows this, that the high priests as well as other members of the priesthood weren't living right before God, yet God's the one that chooses them. In other words, the point that Paul is making is God makes the choice, not you or I based on who we think would be the best one. Now, why is that important? Because some of them are trying to take away from Jesus' high priestly ministry. They're trying to deny the the exalted Christ at the right hand of the Father, and they're saying, well, okay, we'll accept that Jesus went to the cross. We'll accept that he shed his blood, that he's even risen from the dead, but we still need the high priest here on the earth. Well, why? If Jesus is sitting down at the right hand of the Father before the work's done, why is he sitting? See the point? Now, whether anybody intended to convey that or not is not really the point. The question is, what are we saying about what the Bible tells us? What are we saying about our actions or our attitudes relative to what the Bible tells us is true? Now, you could stop here for a long time and and really meddle in people's affairs. Because it's real easy for people to say, oh, I believe God. But then they go around whining about the circumstance. Well, if you really believe God, what are you whining about? I know dealing with people in healing school, that's one of the things, oh, man, that just gets all over me. Because people will start talking about, well, I believe God, Pastor Mike, but I, I, you just don't understand. And you can hear this whine in their voice. I've never had anybody healed with a whine in their voice. And they may think it's a real simple thing, but it's not. It means a lot. Paul's making the same point here. So verse 5. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, this is a reference to Psalm 2, verse 7. We think of Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River, where there was a voice from heaven that said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We think of those things. That's not the point that Paul makes to the Jews. Paul makes the point that David said in Psalm 2, that God spoke of Jesus saying, This is my beloved son. So he says, we know that God picked him because, number one, God said, this is my beloved son. The, or, I'm sorry, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And he said also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to have to show you this one. This one is in uh, Psalm 110. When we get over to chapter 7, Paul is going to talk a lot about this one. So I want you to see what the, um, the context is here. So you understand what point Paul is making to the Jews when he says this. Here's a Psalm of David. You'll recognize, uh, verse one. Psalm 110. I'll read down through verse four. Well, I don't know. I'll read a few verses anyway. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. You may remember in, uh, in, uh, Matthew 22, I think it is. Jesus is talking to, the, to uh, the Jews and in the presence of his disciples, and, and he asks him a question. He said, um, uh, the Christ, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they answer the Jews, the priesthood, maybe some of the guys Paul's writing to, answer up, and they say, well, oh, he's the son of David. And then Jesus refers back to Psalm 110, verse 1, and says, then how did David say, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool? He said, if he's David's Lord, how can he be his son? And, and that just shut everybody up. Well, this is the reference that he's talking about. Now, notice how it speaks in the, in the original language. And this, is, this is a great translation. The Lord, meaning God, said unto my Lord, meaning Jesus. The language shows you that David had a relationship with, with the second person of the Godhead. He doesn't identify a relationship with the first, with God the Father, but God, Jesus the Son, he refers to. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Okay, we can identify timing here because Jesus was seated at the right hand of God after he was raised from the dead, Right? So what is he talking about? Sitting in his right hand until he makes his enemies your footstool. Notice in verse 2, it tells us what the end of that period of time will be. The Lord, God the Father, shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, the only time that the Bible talks about Jesus ruling after he's been raised from the dead is during the millennium period. So it's, this is covering about a 2,000-year stretch here. The time period between verses 1 and verse 2 is about 2,000-plus years. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, that's when he sat on the right hand of God until he makes his enemies his footstool. Then he comes back after the tribulation during the millennium and he rules with a rod of iron. So it's it's jumping dispensations here. Can you see that? It's crossing time periods, which is a big deal in Paul's argument with the Jews. So he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. I'm talking about the millennium. The people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Now this is not the return of Jesus for the church. This is not the rapture. This is Jesus returning in his power and his glory where the Bible says we come back with it. So it says the people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauty of holiness from the womb of thy morning, and thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn, verse 4, and will not repent, thou art a priest forever. Notice forever. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it says, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. Again, that's talking about the millennium. It's talking about the, the, uh, uh, could also refer to the tribulation period as well. Now back to Hebrews chapter 5. Paul uses this. Not only to speak of Jesus being the Son of God, but he speaks of Jesus as being established as the High priest. Now this is Old Testament stuff. This is part of the law of Moses that they're holding to. So he says, David is very specifically speaking to my Lord, saying God is speaking to God, God the Father is speaking to my Lord, meaning Jesus, saying, "Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who now speaking of Jesus in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers. And supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. That would certainly include the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe other things, probably other things as well, but it certainly includes the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience, King James says by, Greek says through, the things which he suffered. Now folks, here's why this is important. You don't learn obedience through trial. I'm sorry. You don't learn obedience by being tried. You learn obedience for how you handle the trials. Now, how do we know, what do we know about Jesus handling trials? Well, we know when the devil tempted him, Jesus always responded, responded in each of the three temptations by saying it is written. Now, how many of you want your kids to learn obedience? Wouldn't it be great if you could get that across just by telling them? The reality is you don't learn obedience by being told. You learn obedience by what you do in the middle of a situation. You learn obedience by applying what you were told in the middle of a difficult situation. When I say difficult, I don't necessarily mean adverse circumstances, although it can be. I'm just talking about any position, any situation of resistance. And the world gives you a lot of resistance. So this is what it's saying about Jesus. It's saying Jesus learned obedience by or through the experience of putting the word to work in adverse circumstances, which is the same way we learn obedience. That doesn't mean that Jesus was unwilling to be obedient. It just means that as long as he was the son of God in heaven before he came to the earth, all that he could experience was the idea of obedience. Because until he became a man, he couldn't experience man's walk here on the earth. So that's what it means. He learned obedience through his experience. It's the same way we learn obedience, and that is when we apply the Word of God, when we put the Word of God to work in the middle of any and every circumstance, that's how we learn to be obedient to God's Word. It's one thing to say, I trust God. It's another thing to really trust Him in the middle of trouble. Amen? Verse 9, And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation. Well, this word perfect has to mean the finishing of his sacrifice then because that's when he became the author of salvation. He didn't become the author of salvation when he was here on the earth. He became the author of salvation after he was raised from the dead. So his perfection and therefore his obedience must have had something to do with the time after he died on the cross. See, when Jesus said hung on the cross and said, it is finished, what was he talking about? What was finished? It'd be real easy to say, and a lot of people religiously say, well, salvation was accomplished. Well, then why do you have to be buried and, and raised again three days later? Why didn't Jesus just come down from the cross and say, okay, now everybody can see I am the Son of God, I'm going to heaven now. Why didn't he do it like that? The only thing that was finished when he hung on the cross and, and gave his, his spirit over into the hands of God, the only thing that was finished was the law of Moses. That's what he's saying is finished. That's when he f- completed the sacrifice that the law of Moses said that he would be. But salvation wasn't accomplished. Salvation wasn't accomplished at all. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, the last verse of Romans chapter 4, it says Jesus was raised when we were justified. King James says he was raised for our justification. The original Greek says he was raised when we were justified. In other words, you weren't justified on the cross. You weren't justified until the moment that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the timing was such that there was still a penalty to pay. See, if Jesus had accomplished salvation just by being beaten and shedding his blood on the cross, then that would only be a physical salvation because that's all he had suffered up until that point in time. But he had to become your substitute. Now, I know it's a touchy subject with a lot of people, but if Jesus didn't die spiritually, then you're not redeemed spiritually. Because there has to be an equal exchange. There had to be a death for a life. No, but Jesus just offered his body on the cross. Okay, then redemption is just a physical redemption. Because that means he only died physically. For physical life. Do you understand that? There had to be a life for a life. So Jesus didn't finish anything until he was raised from the dead. That's when he was made perfect, and that's when as soon as he got back to the earth, he breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. That's when he became the author of salvation. So that's what Paul is telling him. He's saying, And he was when he was made perfect, or being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now that's a real key verse for the Jews, because at that point in time, they weren't obeying him. They were still mixing Christianity with Judaism. Verse 10, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, as we said in chapter 7 and verse 11, Paul is making the point, he's saying, since God expects perfection, and that perfection could not come by the law, there had to be another priesthood to be established. Now, what's interesting here to me is that, that Paul changes everything. Notice, uh, look down to verse 11. He then says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Paul changes everything. I mean, it's like it hits him who he's writing to. And he says, you bunch of stupid people. Now, what do we know about the church at Jerusalem? Well, think about what James tells us about and the things that he wrote in his letter. He talks about people biting and devouring one another. He talks about them being real and, and, and the difference between what they claim as far as their faith is concerned and the way they live. He literally describes a situation where everybody sits in church, and or, or, at least as close as we can relate to it. People sit in church and they say, yes, amen. But then as soon as it's over, they bite and devour the pastor. They chew the pastor up when they're talking and gossiping to each other. Now, that's where the church of Jerusalem had had come to. They became that kind of church. It's not how they started off. Man, they started off and the power of God was flowing and and miracles were taking place. Acts 1 through 5, until they started murmuring, man, I'm telling you, people are getting healed by Peter's shadow as he walks down the road. It was known, it became famous throughout the world there for a period of time. But then people started, you know, having their little preferences and this, that, and the other. And by the time we find Paul's ministry, we know that the church at Jerusalem is not just trying to stifle things in their own congregation. They're trying to stifle things throughout the whole church, throughout the church world. They're sending policemen, Judaizers, the law of Moses police, to different cities to try to straighten things out that they don't like. And most of what they didn't like is they didn't like the Jews mingling with the Gentiles unless the Gentiles got circumcised. And even then, once they got circumcised, you got to eat all the right stuff and stay away from the wrong stuff. They're trying to control them based on the law of Moses. So Paul knows who he's writing to. Now, this is one reason why we kind of put the book of Galatians together with the book of Hebrews. Because when you remember what Paul said to the church at Galatia about, Oh, you stupid Galatians. Who tricked you into going back into what had you in bondage to begin with? Or who tricked you into thinking that now Jesus has made you righteous, he's, he's caused you to be recreated in spirit, somehow now you're going to be perfected by some law of Moses that never worked anyway. You remember? Paul seems to hit the same place with the Jews. And then he stops everything about it. The whole sixth chapter, the, the rest of the fifth chapter and the whole sixth chapter, Paul starts talking about you people ought to be way further than this because you know where you started. But now look at where you've digressed to. Now look at what you've turned loose of and look at what you've come to. And now, instead of being able to tell you about the high priestly ministry of Jesus and even reveal things to you about Melchizedek, you folks need to go back and learn the basics again. And that's what chapter 6 is all about. And it's all tied into the high priestly ministry of Jesus. And he's telling them, and this is an important point for you and me. We'll close with this. This is an important point for you and me. If you don't know the basics, you'll never be able to understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus. Which in my opinion is why the church is so ignorant of what Jesus does at the right hand of God. Look at how much arguments take place over chapter 6. Well, Does that mean somebody can lose their salvation? That's what everybody gets hung up on. Folks, can I share something with you just real quickly? If you're not trying to get out, it's not an issue for you. Because you're not going to get out accidentally. Nobody has ever lost their salvation accidentally. But that's what baby Christians and people that are just getting started and people that really haven't done anything about their flesh yet, that's what they all want to know. Well, do you believe somebody can lose their salvation? Or do you believe in eternal security? Folks, I believe, let me just tell you where we're at. I believe without a shadow of a doubt in eternal security unless a person makes a choice to get out. Because that's what the Bible teaches. But what idiot wants out? And that's the point Paul's making. He's saying, you folks are so dull of hearing, that means you've stopped listening to the truth, that now you need to go back and refresh yourselves in the basics. You need to come back into the basic things so that then you can go forward. And understand who you really are in Christ and what he's doing for you now at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to use Melchizedek, which is the ultimate hook for the Jews. He's going to use the ministry of Melchizedek as the explanation for who Jesus is for us. So we'll stop there. We've run out of time. So we'll stop there and we'll start with, uh, with verse 11 next time and going down into chapter 6. Chapter 6 gets fun. Paul has a good time with this because he doesn't pull any punches. He lets them know right off the bat. Here's how things are like it or not. Now, remember, this is uh, this is the group of people that Paul said that he'd be willing to give up his own salvation for if they'd only be saved. So he's doing it in love. He's doing it to try to get them into the right place. But, you know, as well as I do, some people, you just have to shock for him to see the truth. That's what he's going to do in chapter six. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all that you have revealed to us. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to open our eyes so that we'll see who Jesus, our high priest, is. And we can therefore take advantage of all that he's done for us. We love you, Father. We thank you that you're with us. You never leave us or forsake us. We thank you, Father, that the greatest days for the church are ahead. And as we grow in the word and are doers thereof, we thank you, Father that you cause us to be everybody that Jesus intended for us to be when He died for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.